The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. You might even notice a kind of <clears throat> bath that we've been bathing in today, you know, just these feelings and ideas and reflections the woundedness of the heart, the tenderness of the heart, the closed down places of the heart. It has an effect on us. And maybe just checking in, how are you doing? How's the body? How's the mind? What's the attitude like now? It's also good um, with these sort of workshops where we're digging in depth because we do get inspired to hear the stories and the teachings. And it's just so interesting how we can basically turn even really healing stories, useful teachings, into another way to judge ourselves or to sort of line ourselves up not forgiving ourselves for not having forgiven ourselves. and I mean, it's funny when we say it out loud, but there it is, you know. And even initially an innocent thought like, oh, Wynn has done so much good work, you know, because, you know, you hear someone share like the kind of being on fire, working with difficult or powerful places in, in the practice. And... And then it's just so interesting how it turns around and it becomes about me. <laughs> Remember what Wynn talked about earlier, earlier in the day about this habit of conceit. Always turning it into something about me. Or even if I'm thinking about you, it's like you in relationship to me. <laughs> and whether you're better than or worse than or we're both screwed or both bad or however we might conceive it. And that's why, you know, wherever we are, whatever's happening, whether we're feeling a lot of sort of the classic place of opening up to some difficult experience or feeling flat and numb and disconnected from what's going on or a lot of wholesome, beautiful qualities around for us, the point isn't for us to find a landing place, safe place even, the practice, the point of life is to use the experience that's arising to be free, to be free with the way it is. So these wounds, these places that appear to us to be unfinished, because it's easy to think that, um, to misunderstand the teachings and around compassion and forgiveness and committing in deeper and more subtle ways to non-harming, it can be easy to imagine that when I get to the end of that work, then I'll be free. Like when I've... Oh, maybe not. <laughs> you didn't go down there, did you? <laughs> So we we'll offer forgiveness to ourselves, <laughs> especially 
those two of us who were responsible for letting them know. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> so I was just talking about how it's easy for us to. Uh, more coming? Hey. So one more time, please forgive us for forgetting you downstairs. <laughs> and I just started talking about how uh, it's really easy, having spent the day like we have, learning, hearing good things, to turn it into something that we use to judge ourselves. And, uh, and then the second point I was just about to make was how when we hear about things like attending to our unattended sorrow or unattended pain, self-hatred, throwing somebody out of our heart, it can, it can seem like when I do all of that important healing work, all that important emotional work, then I'll be free, right? And there is some, there, there's a reason we think that way because it does, every, every step of healing feels good. You know, if we, if you've had a, unfinished business between you and a sibling or you and somebody at work or you and one of your children or whoever it might be. And whether you do it with them or you do it independent of them, but you do the healing work. You look at the pain like we talked about earlier. You tenderize your heart. You map out the wound. You notice that you become familiar with the content. You familiar with what it feels like, the unpleasantness of it. You learn to see that the identification with the stories is really the cause. You learn how not to be confused by that, right? How to sort of have the don't know mind, keep an open space to let things move. You find some real freedom. But this this kind of work or this sort of attitude presumes that there's an end to forgiveness or an end to compassion, an end to this healing work. And what we end up doing then is postponing freedom or joy or release until we think we're done, until it's done. But how about if it's never done? So this is the, you know, the, the last half an hour or so and I'll, hopefully we'll save some time for people's comments and questions before we end at four, but for half an hour or so, just to look at, to reimagine, let's call it, to reimagine the healing work of forgiveness. So instead of it seeming to us in our heart, in our mind, as 
like we're walking up this difficult mountain or we're doing, traversing the difficult ground of forgiveness, you know, really looking at our stuff, really learning how to be honest in our relationships. But that approach is sort of contaminated from the beginning, right? It has embedded in it a kind of conceit that, you know, my work, when I finish this work, I'll be done. So another attitude, another way of relating is to, and I mentioned it, uh, we both have mentioned it about the work as a teacher. Well, it teaches us different things. One thing, these, uh, you know, these unseen wounds, these places of resentment and hate and shame. One thing they teach us is like how not to feed it, how to allow it to unwind, how to allow the wound to heal, to be less heavy, to be less disorienting in our life, right? But there's another thing that we learn too, which is even if it remains so-called unresolved, not completely healed, but there's a way of letting it be nature and not self. And actually letting the energy, it's like, uh, I don't know if this really makes sense as a simile, but what was it? Maybe that movie not too long ago where the earth was dying and they sent some people into some black hole to find future worlds. What was that? Interstellar, yeah. But, you know, there's sort of an idea in, you know, deep space travel. I don't know if they've used it much. Maybe they used it with some of the trips to the moon. But you, you sort of use gravitational pull. You know, you get in an orbit, but you're in an orbit that sort of swings you out and you get some momentum to send you wherever you're trying to get to, right? So you leave orbit, but you're using the momentum of the orbit itself to sort of... And there's something about another relationship to not only our own woundedness, but the greater woundedness and imperfection of the world itself. You know, that as a people, for example, we don't have our act together and there's tremendous suffering and injustice in our world. And so it's sort of like we have, just to keep it simple, a choice to either for the imperfections in our own mind and heart and the imperfections in the world, instead of it being a dead weight, or even if we're working, doing sort of the skillful work, because we've been trained, you know, and we've studied the Buddhist teachings or some other wise teachings, and we're really showing up for that injustice in our heart or injustice in the world, and we're loosening the screws, and we're listening and speaking truth to power and doing the work, whether internal emotion work, external work of justice work. But there's a, there's a, even if we're doing that good work, there's a way that it becomes oppressive, like needing to do that work, dependent on that work getting done. And and it, the, the, the dependency, the weightfulness of the work itself is exhausting. It sort of burns out. So you don't, we don't even 
stay with the work that we're finding so valuable initially. And many of us have had this experience in our own personal spiritual path where we're on fire, we're on fire, and then just slowly crept, on, crept up on us, we're not on fire anymore. Don't really want to sit in the morning, don't really want to study anymore, don't really want to hang out with our Dharma friends anymore or whatever. You know, and it doesn't matter if it's like Buddhist practice or some other wholesome kind of spiritual, emotional work that you've been doing. And it was because the work was contaminated with this conceit, this dependence on getting somewhere. So it's not easy, but we have to see the work as enlivening and liberating. So it's like we do it for, for its own sake, not doing it in order to be done with it, but doing it because it's liberating to do the work. It's enlivening to look. I mean, just to, I don't know how many of you are like this, but you know, a lot of us in our sits, there are these wounds. Some of them are quite stable. You know, it sort of seems like uh, existential threat to the Buddhist teachings on impermanence. Like, there's that ache again. You know, there's that knot in my heart, that dead weight in my heart, that roiling of anxiety in my gut, that, you know, whatever it might be. And it seems like that's not coming and going. That's like whenever I look, it's there. And uh, so it's really interesting to ask the question, like, what is the mind, how does the mind relate? What story is my mind telling itself about this spiritual work, this work of forgiveness, this work of unwinding and loosening and liberating the knots? Because we have a big habit of telling a story that involves, oh, poor me. Who was it? Someone mentioned the oh, poor me story earlier today. Wasn't there? Yeah. Maybe they're not here anymore. Maybe they had an oh, poor me story. <laughs> oh, poor me. I got to stay to four o'clock. <laughs> Here's a poem called The Healing Time by Persha. Uh, Gatir, I'm not sure how she pronounces her last name. Finally on my way to yes. Finally on my way to yes, I bumped into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hier hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them up one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. Now imagine if the very real difficult work of spiritual practice was this, had this flavor of like this great privilege of doing the seemingly endless work of relationship, like having a healthy relationship with our cat, let alone, you know, partner, family, whatever. Relationships are not easy. And it, and to, so what do we do with the difficulty of relationship? Do we turn it into this temple of doom? 
Or do we turn it into a temple, an enlivening temple of love? Like when we're saying in the yoga class, you know, we're in the... <laughs> it's like uh, we need to see these difficult places in our life as having a lot of ener- energy, you know, that it's like a privilege to be able to dance with. Even if it throws us around much of the time, but like to be in it. You see this sometimes, you know, with some parents, not so much parents of teenagers, but when the parents or when the kids are like elementary age and so they're not like cute three and four year olds. I know they're not always cute when they're three and four, but <laughs> but like when the kids sort of have their own mind, starting to have their own mind, and they and a wise now I'm talking about wise parents, so moments some of you know this. I'm not a parent, so, but I was a school teacher for a long time so at, at this age group. And it's like there can be a time in moments where there's a, this mutual respect of each other's power. You know, and, and for the parent or for the teacher, like seeing that every day their power is increasing you know, and your power is decreasing. It's just like such an interesting dynamic. And it can be very enlivening because when... You were, when we were in control, yeah, in a way things got done, or you could, but it's sort of, uh, it's not as exciting. But when there's sort of, when you can't just tell them what to do, but you have to help them find in themselves that they want to do it, well, that's a whole different dance, you know, that they get to participate in it. And when it works, it's very enlivening. And I think this is this uh, refuge, Buddha knowing Dharma. We often chant the refuges. Buddha knowing Dharma, letting Sangha arise. Sangha being the beautiful, enlightened qualities. Where, but we find the enlightened qualities like forgiveness, like true compassion, joy, appreciative joy, in the messiness. We need to engage the messiness. We need to see it as a temple of joy, a temple of release, this unshakable release. I, I'm still moved by Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Please Call Me By My True Names. You probably have seen this, but I like to find reasons to read it at least once or twice a year here at the center. He wrote it probably, you know, certainly more than 20 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago. Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the great Teachers who, from the East, uh, Vietnamese person, Buddhist monk, but never was allowed back after um, protesting the Vietnam War at the Paris Peace Talks in the late 60s. And he has been allowed back a few times more recently. So the poem goes like this. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today I'm still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I'm the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I'm the frog swimming happily 
in the clear water of a pond, and I'm the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I'm the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I'm the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I'm the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable. I am the member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true name so I can hear all my cries and all my laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open the door of compassion. Yeah, it was written in 1989. So this is uh, one way to relate to forgiveness is this kind of alchemy where we're turning wounds and pain into something beautiful. And to really have a an open mind, like don't imagine we know with for where forgiveness leads. It's like the if we hold forgiveness as the abandoning of Ill, Ill will, you know, it sounds a little bit mundane not to have any ill will in the mind, but we need a, a sense of humility that we may not actually know that experience of no ill will, no conceit of ill will, no, no uh, even faint shading of oh poor me, or boredom, nothing's happened, or impatience, or irritation. Like what would that, what would that world be? But the more we touch moments where the heart blooms, you know, ordinary moments become so deeply healing, so deeply full, it kind of knocks our socks off. We don't, we don't get it. Like another one of those famous poems that have made the rounds in Buddhist circles for so many years by, I think, Galway Canal, St. Francis in the South. Do you know that poem? The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow, and told her in words and in touch, blessings of the earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all the way, all down through her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of her tail. 
from the heart spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milken milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teeth into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long perfect loveliness of sow right this is a, just a taste of you know these little moments that poets and wise people capture for us of of the world, of the heart, of the body opening up when there's no ill will. And then it becomes sort of our privilege, our great like sacrament to do the work of forgiveness, not some burden that we have to do because I was stupid and I got myself into a lot of resentment or a lot of self-hatred or unworthiness and now I got to unwind and do that work because I've dug this hole and I've got to get out of this hole. But to, to reimagine the work so it isn't like I'm doing this work to get back to some kind of sanity, but it's really, it's like this is the work of freedom. It's like that story from the Buddhist tradition of Tisa Gotama, the woman whose son died. There's sort of a backstory of you know, in that uh, sexist society back then, and um, probably not that different today, who knows, but, um, and a woman being married off to family, and the only way she gets status is by having a son and not having a son for a number of years and being mistreated by her in-laws and then getting a son and finally getting some respect for the first time in her life, and then the son dies, and... You know, her world comes crashing down and, and she, she basically loses it. She just cannot accept the fact that her son has died and holding the son even after it's begun to stink and rot. And eventually someone has some compassion and sends her to the Buddha, hoping that the Buddha might be able to help her. And the Buddha, you know, with his clarity, didn't immediately, even though, you know, everyone as you might imagine, was sort of freaking out when this, I think they even tell the story that she had like torn her clothes off in her pain. And so anyway, you could just imagine what a mess showing up where the monks and nuns are. And instead of saying to the woman, you know, get away, the Buddha says, yeah, I can help you. You know, because she's asking for the Buddha to help about the son. And the Buddha says, yeah, I can help you with that. You need to go, you've probably heard the story, many of you have at least, Go find a mustard seed from a home that hasn't experienced death. Now, it's different back then than it is now because we have isolated ourselves from death to a large degree in our culture. But back then, you know, mustard seed was nothing, like it didn't cost much. Everyone had mustard seeds. So she thought it would be pretty easy. But sure enough, as you see, all the story goes, every house she goes to, oh, sure, we have mustard. And it says, but I need it from a house that hasn't experienced any death. Well, you know, a couple years ago, you know, and on and on like that. And just the normalizing of the pain, the normalizing of the betrayal, you know, and the loss and all, it just sunk in. It just clarified her mind. So eventually, after hearing enough, after the data 
got integrated and her mind cleared, she returned to the Buddha and asked to join the Sangha, the monastic Sangha. And as these stories often go, she was soon awakened, full awakening. And just uh, because, you know, her lawsuit was against the world, you know, the injustice of whatever it was that took her child from her, the disease or not fair, not okay. There's a fairly potent line from Annie Lamont in one of her books, refusing to forgive is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. Right? It really has that kind of insanity. But, but sort of knocking on this door of forgiveness, really valuing it, really seeing it as a spiritual alchemy. The image that's used in the tradition is drop by drop, the bucket gets full. This is the longer passage. Do not ignore the effect of each wise action saying, this will come to nothing. Just as a gradual fall of raindrops, the water jar is filled. So in time, the wise become replete with good. One of the things that has been really useful for me over the years, now it's been kind of a practice I've been doing for a long time, it's just I think it's a natural maturing of the practice is a deepening suspicion of any kind of psychic weight, any kind of suffering, any kind of negativity. It's not that it doesn't, those qualities don't visit, but my mind now my heart now is naturally suspicious. Like, well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, that's, that's what happens when I'm in a funk, when I'm irritated, angry. It's like, I'm pretty quickly, the mind understands, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. There's something that the mind isn't seeing. There's something the mind isn't understanding that leads the world to look this way. This isn't actually the way it is. And sort of it's a flipping because we have this imprint, either a superficial imprint that the world is fine and then the shadow is like we can't let in 95% of the world because it challenges that sentimental or superficial idea that things are fine. Or we have a little bit more accurate connection with the world and we think it's bad. You know, life is bad, I'm bad, you're bad. And I, you know, I just survived because I'm fortunate enough to you know, collect enough interesting experiences one moment after another that I'm not being dragged, completely dragged down by the difficulty in life. But then, you know, if we have been honest and engaged in our spiritual work over the years, and we've 
we've done this sort of, we've had these sort of experiences where we, when looking at in a balanced way, when being patient with, when moving into these wounds with an unfixed view, we realize a kind of wholeness or freedom that is embedded in the wound itself. Like, I think, was it Pema Chodron you were reading earlier? Talks about, you know, something deeply immersed in the muck, something beautiful. And there are many images in the tradition about this. So we're not running from the muck. It's like the heart we're here to realize, the understanding we're here to realize, the freedom we're here to realize, is the freedom that arises, that emerges, precisely because we're not running from the muck, from the hate, from exactly what is unacceptable. What is the heart? What is the understanding? What is the freedom that doesn't have to run from exactly what my mind has been programmed to run from, hide from, hit back? Right? I remember just today when Wynn was doing the guided meditation. I'm not sure it was the first one in the afternoon or the second one in the afternoon. Maybe it was the second one in the afternoon. But anyway, it's like, uh, and again, this is, where my mind goes now, like in these sort of meditations or just in general my practice and daily life practice, it's sort of like I'm just sort of scanning my life, my experience, like is there anything scary? Is there anything triggering the closing down of my heart? Because that's interesting, right? There's something to realize there. And you know, in, in the yogic mystical tradition, they have, in, in northern India, the two kind of danced together for many centuries, sort of later schools of Buddhism and uh, the yogic mystical tradition. And they had this concept, uh, especially articulated well in the yogic tradition about Maya and uh, this play of the universe and how, uh, like, if you would ask one of these sages, like, you know, why is it this way? Well, it's God's delight. You know, they'd say something like that, like God or the divine principle, right? It, it allows itself to take birth, right? You see elements of this even in the Christian tradition with Jesus becoming man, you know, taking on a body and the complications of embodied existence because it's like, it's like a spiritual amusement park to realize that it's okay, that embodiment, that relationship, that betrayal, that all the suffering, all the imperfections, that it doesn't, that it isn't what it appears to be. It isn't defining a self. It isn't, it's defining me. And this is what we find in all of the little corners that aren't healed yet in our heart and mind. Every single place where our heart wants to say no, you know, or this is too much, or no, not this. So like in that guided meditation, you know, I was like the things that still seem believable in my mind. You know, I have to, now I actually have to work a little bit about the things that, like, um, like one thing that still will catch me is like wasting time. And like if I'm reading too much news or 
engaging in too many entertainments, and it's like, oh, you know, you're missing your opportunity. You're being bad, right? So it's like a, that's an edge in my practice. Or um, uh, being like holding on, like it, now I'm actually middle class. I never was, but as I get closer to 60, it's like I'm entering middle class. I actually have some money in the bank for retirement now. And, and it's sort of like guilt about affluence. You know, I've got a nice car, I've got a nice house, and like, oh. So there's like these things, or like, oh, I'm not good enough as a teacher. I'm, my practice isn't deep enough, or I, I got to get serious, you know, I'm getting old. And <laughs> or things like that. Like that, these are just the neurotic things that can still catch my mind. So I, I let them, like Wynne was saying early, like we have to let them show up. Oh yeah, maybe I really shouldn't be teaching, you know, or you know, maybe I really shouldn't have money in the bank. You know, there are people who don't have enough to eat, right? Or any number of other things that that money could be used for. What am I doing with that money? You know, and I feel the tug to do this or to do that sometimes with money, and it's like, oh, do I need another pair of pants? Or, you know, so it's like uh, these unresolved places in my heart. And we need them because there is where we find the heart that can be intimate, that can be unafraid, even in, in the messiness, even where it is unresolved. There's something so liberating about not having to be different, not needing a different world, not even needing the old wounds to be resolved. It's like now where there, wherever there might be, you know, issues, problems at the center, or problems in relationships that aren't clean, aren't fixed or perfect, you know, instead of my mind, I mean, I have a mind that like goes right to problem solving, you know, and it's pretty good at sort of like, how can we, you know, resolve this thing? But now I try to, Imagine it not getting resolved and that being okay. And of course, lo and behold, it frees up the mind to be even more creative in trying to resolve, do whatever can be done. Because it's not neurotically dependent on it being cleaned up or fixed or put away. So in this way, the practice of forgiveness and just more generally the practice of this valuing of non-harming and the valuing of metta, the qualities, the divine abodes that Wynne mentioned earlier of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. That's not, this work is not for the faint of heart, right? Because we're, we're going to use the teachings, the practices to go exactly where we don't want to go because that's where we realize the heart that's not afraid of going exactly where we don't want to go seeing what we don't want to see, feeling what we don't want to feel, moving in ways we don't want to move. For some people, it's speaking truth to power. For others, it's learning to shut up. I mean, it's really, it's going to be different for each of us, like how we navigate that space of healing. And it's really about the Buddha knowing the Dhamma, the sort of the experience of being awake, showing up, being present, that also 
using our radar and being honest with ourselves about where we don't want to look, where we don't want to relax, where we don't want to soften, where we don't want to be patient, you know, where we don't want to feel. And we go there. Or we know we need to go there, and maybe we orbit it from a distance, or we just tell our friends that we need to go there until there's enough confidence, there's enough stability, and we can really go there. So I'll leave it here. We have about 12 minutes. Be nice to hear from some folks questions that you might have or comments from your own practice you want to share with the group. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth. Anybody like to begin as we finish our time together today? What have you learned in the reflections? What questions come to mind? I very much appreciated your reference to the beloved teacher because I've been saying my enemy is my teacher and that's really harsh and it feels much, much better to say my beloved teacher. Mm-hmm. Or my beloved teacher, the enemy. Right? That's that, you know, Dalai Lama uses that for the Chi- Chinese, you know. What does he say? Something like my dear friend, the enemy. You know. That's where I first, that's where I first heard um, my enemy. Yeah. The Dalai Lama. Yeah. And because even though that might seem like a stretch in some of your situations, like some person or some situation doesn't seem like a dear friend, but, but the beginning part is you can acknowledge how much life energy is in that relationship, in that situation. Now that life energy is neither good nor bad. It's life energy. It is the juice of life. And that will help sort of do that turning that Robert's talking about, like to really, oh yeah, it is a teacher, right? And the fruit of that teacher, what that teacher has to offer is a lot of life energy. Thanks, Robert. Other thoughts? Questions? Yeah, please. Well, so um, I've been wondering in... Say your name. It's Anne, right? Annie. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going. Anyway, um, just wondering when um, there's, let's say, I have a situation in my life where I'm resentful or angry with someone who who I'm in an ongoing relationship with. Um, how and and something happened in the past, not recently, but months away or years ago or whatever. How how can you tell when um, when it's appropriate or skillful to actually try to resolve something with that person rather than just work with your own forgiveness of that past event? Yeah. Well, basically, like doing the work ourselves there's no reason to hold back. And doing the work with the person and changing the relationship with the person, we were talking about this earlier today and then maybe during one of the breaks, yeah, maybe with Mary. But it's like that trust has to be earned. So, you know, initially, depending on the situation, you might only be, it may be skillful just to observe the person from a distance, like you're talking to people who know that person and you're asking, well, how's that person doing, you know? 
and you're getting some indirect feedback that maybe they're starting to get their act together or maybe they're starting to see their stuff. So it's really appropriate if somebody has uh, acted in unskillful ways, has violated a sense of trust, it's not, it wouldn't be appropriate to immediately move back into the relationship, right? But that doesn't mean we can't do our own work of acknowledging our own pain, our own fear, having a different relationship with the story of betrayal. Doesn't mean the fact we're changing the facts. We're just experimenting with the uh, uh, loving, releasing, liberating way to relate to the memory. Right? What is the appropriate way to relate to the memory? We're not changing the facts or what we remember, but just what we're doing with the memory and with the pain associated with the memory. What is the skillful way? And it's not about imposing an answer to that question. We're just exploring. And there's no way to explore without being close, without a story. Right? We can't be close and have a story of what that person did to me. Because what remains isn't the story. What remains that is relevant is that it feels like this. The story is initially useful to help us remember, oh yeah, it feels like this. But once the awareness is aware of the feeling that's there, the ouch that remains, then the story doesn't really need, it can be there in the periphery. But what is relevant is it feels like this now. And now it's not the past. The past has shown up. This is what's left of the past. There is this feeling that's being felt right now. It feels like this. And the interesting question to me, because I care, is how to relate. Is there a mind, is there an understanding that can be close to this, be unafraid of this? Whatever this is, it's life energy. Is it safe to let it move? I don't even know what it wants to do. Is it safe to experiment and just see what it wants to do? Yeah, thanks, Annie. Time for a couple more folks. Yeah, please, Laura. Um, I am especially interested in some advice for actions after forgiveness, I guess. As I understand not to make a judgment whether or not it was whose fault it is, right or wrong, and that that is based on conceit. But as a person with limited time and a lot to do, I have to be discerning in how I how I act after forgiving because forgiveness is the result of a certain boundary being crossed. And that discernment often feels like judgment, although it's really just, I guess, in my defense, trying to be efficient and use my limited, precious time as best as I can. Yeah, but again, remember that the forgiveness is not done for the other person. It's just sort of loosening the screws. It will affect the other per people involved, but it's not about them. And the habit in our mind is always to think that it's about them. So you're learning to not hold ill will because every single investigation, every moment we've actually honestly looked, 
we see the dysfunction of ill will. It doesn't help. It just puts a clamp on the mind, heart, and body in a way that makes everything more difficult, including being a loving and skillful person. And then the other thing that comes to mind, Laura, is that we shouldn't be afraid of other people's suffering or other people's pain. So if we're doing what we think seems to be best in our life, making choices that seems to be appropriate balance of caring and for self and our duties and responsibilities and giving other people time and meeting their needs. But they may not like it. You know, it may not be any, anywhere close to what they would like from you. But that's their business, right? In the same way that we have to deal with the parameters and the obstacles and whatever is sort of there in the circumstances of our lives, our life, they have to deal with what they're bumping up against. And if we think that we're responsible for meeting other people's needs, right, it's a kind of violence to ourselves. So what our job is is to be not to figure out whose needs are more important, but just to be cultivate and appreciate sensitivity. Like I'm willing to be really sensitive, but when we cultivate a deeper and deeper sensitivity, we're naturally going to be really sensitive to our own needs, right? Because it's it's like a indiscriminate sensitivity. It also makes us sensitive to other people's needs, but not at the expense of being even more sensitive to our own needs because we're just closer, right? I mean, in a funny set, in a funny way, we're always going to be closer to the sensitivity. So we're always going to be picking up our own needs. But still, other people's needs will trump our needs sometimes because we'll look at our needs and we'll have a lot of space. Yeah, that's a need, but I'll be fine without it. And we look at the other person and the resources, space they have in their mind and realize they're not going to be okay. So maybe I'll take care of them. But that's because we want to in that moment, right? We're choosing to do that. Being sensitive to everything this is the movement of the heart in that direction to spend some time with that person or whatever it might be. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Let's take the last few minutes and just do uh, sharing the merit and a little mudita, a little appreciative joy, just for two or three minutes. I'm sure you have some sense of how wholesome it is for us to have spent the day together like this. Just to be interested in better understanding our heart and mind, our lives. This willingness to peel back the layers of defense and rigidity, fixed views. And just more generally appreciating the momentum of the practice in our lives and the deepening values here in our heart around non-harming and kindness and awareness being awake here in the present moment. Just how much we trust these deepening values in our heart. Really appreciate the greater, the strengthening momentum of these values 
and just uh, sense the force of goodness in our lives. doesn't mean our life is perfect, of course, but just to appreciate that we're in it for the long haul, that we have some understanding that we trust, some teachings, some values that we really trust, like kindness, like awareness, sensitivity, forgiveness. May this goodness continue, may it increase, may it never end. And may we happily share all this goodness in our lives with our parents, with our family, friends, our teachers and mentors, and with all beings. So really sensing the goodness in our lives, being part of the wider and deeper wisdom and compassion, past, present, future, all beings, contributing to the great river of goodness and our own goodness part of that, and we happily share all of the goodness in our lives with all beings without exception. May our life contribute to the happiness, the peace, and the freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. And may all this goodness continue and increase and never end. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.